Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. This is sort of a special episode, this episode and the next episode, because we're getting into the holidays, so there'll be no news in this episode, but Brittany, Clint, and Sam are incredible and continue to help us push the way that we think about this world every single day, so make sure you follow them on Twitter, as you should have been doing already. Now, on this episode, we have Piper Kerman, who wrote Orange is the New Black. Prisons and jails in America are built very intentionally to be harsh difficult places to live. They are built very intentionally to be traumatizing places. We also have Georgia Lerner, the ED of the Women's Prison Association. We also are joined by Tracy Fields to talk to us about foster care. What we see is that when there's a problem in child welfare, a horrible incident occurs, everyone wants to make sure there's enough uh, caseworkers and make sure there's enough placements and make sure there's enough foster families. But Then what happens is over time, legislators, commissioners, whatever, lose interest and they start nickel and diming the agency so that you get fewer caseworkers, worse supervision, lots of turnover, and the expertise that was once there just sort of fades away and the services fade and everybody forgets what good practice is because they're so overstressed with limited resources. And then we got to start all over again. So the word for this week is about having tough conversations. A lot of you will be around uh, family or friends, visiting people who might not have the same views about the world and equity and justice as you do. As I remember, in these conversations, you want uh, to make sure that you share the cognitive burden, that you are asking questions, that you're providing space for them to tease out why they think the way that they think. Too often in this work or so often in this work, because we think we're morally right, we start preaching and we don't actually hear like why people think the way they think. And once you hear the why, you can actually be much better at teasing out the strand or the argument that'll help push them to think something differently. But if you never hear sort of why they think the way they think, you'll never get far. I was at uh, an event not too long ago and there's a woman who was against welfare and I asked her, we got to talk and it was like, why are you actually against welfare? And she was like, she thought that welfare took away the dignity of people, that like this idea of giving people free things somehow took away or like took away their dignity. And and it was interesting because I'd never thought about that as a reason why people might be against welfare. I thought that people were against welfare for like money or I don't know, like the welfare queen myth, but she was really like, I think it takes away people's dignity. And it took me being in a place of asking questions and listening differently that was able to, I was able to hear her, uh, hear her understanding and rationale. So that's my offering. The other thing is in lieu of the news, I just remind you that CHIP, which is a children's health insurance program, hasn't been funded to continue and it'll expire uh, in January if it's not funded to continue. About 9 million kids get their health insurance through CHIPS. A lot of kids, a lot of people who rely on this is a main source of medical care in the country. So your advocacy over the winter break, I hope, is centered on CHIP and DACA and making sure that both of them are protected. Let's go. And now my conversation with Piper Kerman, author and producer of Orange is a New Black, and Georgia Lerner, the executive director of the Women's Prison Association. 
George and Piper, thank you so much for joining us today on Pate of the People. Hi, DeRay. We are here to talk about prisons and jails and women. Can we start with what brought both of you to this work? Well, uh, I was brought to this work by the federal government, which incarcerated me from 2004 to 2005. And uh, so I went through the experience of being a defendant in a criminal proceeding. You know, in the in 1998, I learned I'd been indicted. Ended up doing that time, a mercifully short sentence. And then when I came home, I was like, I don't really know what I'm going to do with all that information I just learned, but I'm going to do something. So uh, that's what brought me to the work, the experience of being an incarcerated person. And I worked in nonprofits in the field of HIV and family planning. And a former boss told me to meet with her friend at WPA. And really because I knew a lot about contracts management and government funding. Hmm. I never thought about women in prison. I really never thought about the justice system. And when I got to WPA, it was the start of this incredible education and really transformation for me. I mean, I really... I connected pretty quickly with the fact that every person who came to WPA needed exactly what I needed, like a place to live, a way to support herself. Like there was nothing different. And as a society, we had done such a great job of making people disappear. And it was just, my mother would have said I found my calling. It was, I just feel really fortunate that people put me in a room with Ann Jacobs and she hired me. You lead the WPA. What is a WPA? WPA, Women's Prison Association, is a social services organization that works with women who have a history of justice involvement or who are at imminent risk of involvement. So we will help women and their families before they're in jail or prison at the point of arrest. We'll work with it with families where there's a risk of children being removed to foster care. We really work with people kind of across the life cycle and the criminal justice cycle to help women when they're coming home. So that could be transitional planning, helping people find housing, helping people get work, helping women reconnect with family. And then we do a lot of work at the front end to try to prevent people from getting arrested in the first place. We do a lot of family strengthening work. And then we work with women who are facing charges and run an alternative to incarceration option where women stay at home in the community. That's our program called Justice Home. And that's, it's, um, really a big focus of what we're doing as a way to try to shift. We think it's a a good way to shift the way that we respond to crime as a society. And so we're trying something different where it's, and and we offer legal services, we have housing, and we have Mm -hmm. a a full range of social services for women and families who are in the system. And how many people are normally served in a year? Or like, how do you, how how many people do you touch? Touch probably about 2,500 women and 500 kids. And it's more like 2,000 women who will work with us to really develop a case plan and work with us in an ongoing way. But we reach about 500 more through group workshops and things like that. Got it. And Piper, most people know you as the author of Orange is a New Black. Hmm. And and I want to start there to talk about what led you to tell your story in that way and why is it important to tell the story about women in prison? Like, what is unique about the women population in prison? Uh, I mean, I thought it was important because uh, I didn't know that much about the criminal justice system, ironically, though I had committed a crime uh, when I got locked up, when I went through the whole pretrial experience. And then when I got locked up, that was its own experience. And, uh, you know, as a middle class white woman, many people in my world also knew nothing about the criminal justice system. So my friends, my family, though sometimes when you, you know, start to peel back the curtain a little bit, people say, oh, you know, my brother, my cousin, my my uncle, you know, my 
my neighbor's kid. Um, because, you know, we have the most enormous carceral state in human history in this country. And even though it is disproportionately targeted towards people of color, when you build such an enormous carceral monster, it starts to affect everybody, directly or indirectly. So uh, my own experience of incarceration was very different than what I anticipated based on uh, what sort of the public dialogue about crime, punishment, and prisons was, you know, in the you know, early 2000s when I was going through that experience of, of being indicted, being a defendant, being incarcerated. And I just thought it was important for people to know what women go through. I thought it was important for people to be able to place themselves in the shoes of a person who is criminalized. Um, and I hoped that simply sharing my own story would accomplish that with some folks, and particularly folks who might be fortunate enough not to be touched directly by the system, because I think that's really important. I mean, everyone needs to think about this. Um, I did what I sort of was capable of doing, which was telling the story in a personal way, in a, I think, accessible way, in a, in a pop culture way. And that has been translated, obviously, in the adaptation to the Netflix series. Um, the unique situation of women and girls in the system is really important. I mean, we are a small percentage of the system overall, generally 6 or 7% of any correctional system. Though when you look at probation and parole, there are you know far more women on probation and parole than are actually currently incarcerated. Also, when you look at city and county jails, a much greater number of women churn through those kinds of institutions for relatively short stays. So at any given time, there's 200,000 adult women who are incarcerated in the United States, but the overall number of women who are affected by criminalization and incarceration is much, much greater. And those women, I think, are really pivotal linchpins in their communities, in their families. So we know when we incarcerate a mother uh, as opposed to a father that her kids are five times more likely to go into the foster care system, for example. So, so the choice to incarcerate women and especially moms, and most incarcerated women are moms, has this seismic effect on the families and on the communities um, who are sort of in that crucible. Um, and that's really important because a huge number of women are incarcerated or criminalized for exceptionally low-level stuff, for drug possession, for property crimes, for, you know, status offenses. A status offense is a very common thing that a girl, you know, a, a, a young girl or young woman might be put into custody for, and that's something like being homeless. It's not necessarily, I mean, homelessness is increasingly criminalized, um, but often, you know, when it comes to girls in the juvenile justice system, we put girls into that system because we simply, you know, the community hasn't identified any other way of, quote unquote, protecting or providing for her safety. And so somehow we turn to a juvenile justice hall to provide safety. That's absurd. Um, yeah. yeah. So... So those are some of the reasons that I thought it was important for people to talk. And we don't, you know, Orange is the New Black is one of the the clearest depictions of women in, in the criminal justice mm -hmm. sort of environment. Most of the images that we see are the movies. It's like always men in prison and jails. Georgia, what sort of building off of that, what are some of the issues that women face in the, in 
like in the system experience, whether it's pretrial, whether it's like uh, reentry, whether it's like incarcerated. And I and I ask because I know that, you know, I know that women get visited less often mm-hmm. than men. I know that there's so many things, but we don't have public conversations about these. So I'd love to know from a service provider, like what are the how would you round out this conversation about the unique experience? Well, some of what Piper started talking about, which is that women and girls end up getting criminalized for you know, they get arrested because they are, they they end up in juvenile justice because they don't have another place to be. And the reasons that women get involved in the criminal justice system, the things that we call criminogenic risk are different than the risks for men. So the kinds of things that we'll find in a woman who's incarcerated or who's been charged with a crime are things like unsafe housing, a history of trauma, untreated mental illness, the stress of being a parent, economic difficulty, which is also a, a big risk factor for men. But those mental illness and trauma-related risk factors are things that are not risk factors for men. And when we put someone in prison, that's that's very often a re-traumatizing experience for someone. So the physical environment and then the way that people are treated, which is, you know, not like people. I think that we, one of the great things about Orange is the New Black and about Piper's book was that it really helped to humanize every but we have to, we can't ignore the fact that every person we're locking up is a whole human being who had a whole life and a whole story before she got locked up. And the kinds of things that are getting women to the front door of the criminal justice system are the very things that are exacerbated when she's locked up. So many women will get arrested for drug-related charges. And if we do a risk needs assessment, and at WPA, we do gender-specific validated assessments that look at things that are specific to women. And so we'll see that a woman who has a drug charge quite likely has mental illness and some trauma history, and that the reason she's using drugs is because they're taking the edge off of her psychological pain. So when she goes into an incarceration facility, she's probably not getting appropriate mental health treatment and she's being re-traumatized and having all of those symptoms without the benefit of the illegal drugs she might have been using and also not getting the mental health assessment and care that she needs. So while she's locked up, her symptoms are probably getting worse. And if she had children and parental stress was one of the factors that helped get her to do whatever she did and got in trouble, being separated from her children isn't helping to improve her confidence or competence as a mother or improving the relationship with her children. So we actually make almost everything worse in terms of risk factors for women when we separate them from the community and put them in secure facilities. And and it's we they come out of prison or jail higher risk. So if we do those risk assessments, a, a woman's likelihood to commit a crime, her score actually goes up after she's been locked up. And I think that's true for men too. Um, but we're looking at women and, and certainly the factors that are risks for women are made much worse by being in a prison environment. I mean, it's hard to overstate the degree to which that punishment paradigm makes the drivers of crime worse. <laughs> and yeah. so I, I have to echo what Georgia has said, you know, the overwhelming percentage between 80 and 90 percent of women and girls who end up in the criminal justice system are survivors of sexual assault or other kinds of physical assault prior to being incarcerated. They are survivors of significant trauma. I mean, we all have trauma in our lives, of course, but uh, what most women who get locked up have been through prior to incarceration is pretty horrifying. And prisons and jails in America are built 
very intentionally to be harsh, difficult places to live. They are built very intentionally to be traumatizing places. And so, you know, you can certainly widen that lens and talk about, you know, men and boys in the system as well. But we know the data shows really clearly that the factors that drive women's involvement in crime of potential or criminalization relate right back to these things and, and the, the places we send people make things worse. Why don't women get visited like men do in prisons and jails? Well, I mean, I, to a large extent, it's because the women are the ones who are taking, who are going to visit men in jails. And women are really the ones who are holding a family or a community together and organizing the people to go and make a visit. And when, I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot that goes into it. Think about how we're socialized as boys and girls in this society. And when men commit crime, it's, a lot of times people sort of brush it aside and like, oh, you know, boys will be boys. When women commit crime, there's often this other dimension of really being a moral disappointment or we expect women to be the moral standard bearers in communities and in families. And so there's I think I don't want to say they're shunned, but there's a way that they're people aren't necessarily as understanding. And then I think resources are tight. I mean, if even if in New York State, if someone's incarcerated in the state prison system, if she's from New York City, she's lucky if she is in Westchester County in Bedford Hills. But that's still a pretty expensive train ride and a taxi ride. So it's people don't have extra resources or the time to go and make the visit. I remember when I was incarcerated, you know, in current terms of that question of like, why do women get fewer visits? I remember when the outgoing mail would would be sent, you would always see some envelopes, you know, with Kiss marks, you know, women would put on, we, we did have lipstick, you know, would put on lipstick and kiss the envelope and it would be going to another federal prison because her husband or her boyfriend was incarcerated within the system. So for some incarcerated women, you know, the reason they're incarcerated is they've been drawn into some sort of larger situation, sometimes through a relationship. That's very typical. That was true for me. You know, I was drawn into, you know, narcotics, you know, via a relationship with a girlfriend. Um so you see that paradigm. And I do think Georgia is correct. There is a, a more punitive attitude towards a woman who ends up in the system. And, you know, if a mother is removed from the community and her kids become the responsibility of, let's say, her mother or her sister or some other family member, you know, those families tend to be vulnerable families, fragile families. And, you know, the, the money to take, you know, let's say three kids to see their mom in Albion, New York, which is way upstate. If you live in the Bronx or in Brooklyn or in Manhattan, you know, that is a significant and, and very taxing burden for that family as a whole. And that's, you know, I think part of the concrete reason why women frequently have those lifelines to the outside world severed more so than men. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two 
two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, And we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Both of you sort of hinted on this a little bit, but I don't know much about it. So I'm curious is, is what happens to mothers? So like if I'm a mother and I get arrested or, or it gets into prison, like what happens to the kids? Like what is, is there like a process that normally happens? I don't know. Like, I don't know anything about it. You know, that can be a really traumatizing experience. I mean, obviously for mothers, but for children who go through the the process of a parental, you know, arrest and a maternal arrest, particularly because often those kids are literally like, you know, taken briefly into custody by the police and then deposited, you know, either with a family member if one is clearly available or sometimes that's when a kid ends up in the foster care system and kids, you know, siblings can be broken up in the foster care system. Um, It's that that in itself, even if the mother is ultimately not found guilty or like or or adjudicated into prison or jail, can be a profoundly traumatic experience for those kids and and the mom. <laughs> yeah, and from the system side, when when a woman is going into a correctional facility or being assessed in a police you know, at arraignment, nobody's asking about her children and where they are, and so all of the things that are stressing her out. Where are her kids? Are they safe? Did someone pick their child up? At, that is not dealt with at the front door of correctional systems or in courts. And so it's one of the ways that the system is designed at really 
they say it's gender neutral, but it's really thinking more about men who are not the primary caretakers of children. So at the very least, we could do a better job by taking into account if people have minor children and who they want to retain custody of or be able to be in contact with. We make decisions about where we lock people up, but that is not taken into consideration. So the system doesn't care if you have young children who would who could come to visit you if you were locked up nearby that just doesn't care and it sends you wherever it wants and what about pregnancies in jail the first woman i ever saw in labor was in prison hmm. so i remember vividly that first day uh being brought into the unit where i would be living and i it was cold it was february there were a bunch of women outside sort of you know just standing around in the snow and I saw a woman who was enormously pregnant, like eight months pregnant, and I was just confused. I was like, what is she doing here? I didn't—I I'm. I don't, I don't understand. And I still don't understand. She was serving, in fact, an 18-month drug sentence for a first-time nonviolent drug offense. Uh, I saw her going to labor, you know, within, within the first few weeks that I was incarcerated, and I, and, you know— I think it's estimated that about 10% of female prisoners are pregnant. Um, You can't overstate that this is an insane way to treat pregnant people. The idea that uh, public safety is under threat from these women who are in the midst of bringing another human life to fruition is crazy. We know that the care that women receive while they are pregnant, while they are incarcerated, is not always uh, well thought out. Um, and that the experience of childbirth for incarcerated women is, again, you know, this profoundly traumatic experience. And many, many women in this country are still being shackled during their pregnancies and even during their labors, uh, including in states that have, you know, banned that practice by legislation like New York. But we still find, uh, you know, that we have to watchdog correctional systems. They still continue to do it. Even though it's illegal. Even though it's illegal. It's not illegal in all states. I'm 20. Well, there's always a little loophole where if there's an imminent danger of a person Getting away, quote unquote, escaping, right? right. right. I, I mean, that was a danger to the right. correctional officers or themselves, which is yeah. I've been through I've labor. Been in labor three times and Oof. you know wasn't running yeah. anywhere. Right. Yeah, <laughs> but I think actually, I mean, again, this is anecdotal in my opinion, but you know, having been through you know the experience of being incarcerated with pregnant women, some of whom I was friends with, you know, seeing a couple of people that I knew pretty well go through that experience of. Having to, you know, they didn't have their babies in the prison. They were brought out to the local hospital. But the worst thing is the postpartum separation from your infant, which is what happens to the vast majority of women who give birth while they're incarcerated. Explain that. I don't. So I've never you, know, had a baby. you go out. You get taken out of the prison. If you're lucky, you get taken out of the prison. Though you know, in the Wayne County Jail in Detroit, you know, there was a, a a woman who was taken into custody for a traffic violation when she was pregnant, and she gave birth on the floor of the Wayne County Jail. <laughs> Whoa. which is insane. That's nuts. Sorry, I'm getting, I'm starting to yell. <laughs> uh, so most women who are pregnant, 
They are taken out to the local hospital. They give birth to the child. They stay in the hospital generally for one day, maybe two if they had a C-section. Which is not enough. Which is not enough. It's not enough for any woman. Uh, and then they are brought back to prison. And the baby is hopefully taken by, you know, the the other parents or by a family member. But, you know, they, they do not get to have all of the experiences of bonding and childcare with a newborn infant that you know, however you might feel about the mom benefits that child. Hmm. And there are a a handful, I think there are 11 facilities in this country that have prison nurseries. Hmm. Um, I visited two of them. There is one here in New York. There's one in Ohio where I teach. I visited the one in Indiana. Um, And so those facilities, those programs generally allow the woman to be with her baby for at least a year, and and several of them go up through two or three-year-olds. Yes. I have to make the point, though, there are all kinds of rules that bar some women from participating in those programs. So you're basically only allowed into those programs if you have an exceptionally low-level felony in the first place, as opposed to just allowing anyone who needs to be in that program to be in it. Does the baby live at the jail? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There, these are these are prison nurseries that are within the prison yard facilities. Wow, I never yeah. heard about that. Yep, you should come visit. I, sh- come I want visit to visit Ohio. Now, I'd love to talk to you about what are some of the misconceptions that you often hear about either women in prisons and jails, about prisons and jail in general. For so many people, the way that they think about either incarceration or anything about criminal justice is from like something they saw on TV, which we know like is is often a poor reflection of reality. So I'd love to talk about like, what are some things that aren't true or like are half true or are post true um, about <laughs> prisons and jails and women and or women? I think kind of about the big picture that people think that we're doing something effective and that we're <laughs> responding, like that it's an appropriate way to respond when mm-hmm. someone breaks the law and that that's how we're going to have someone pay their debt to society. And that then we're, done. Like, okay, we've meted out justice somehow because we've sent someone to prison. And then, and that people maybe get help while they're inside and maybe they don't, but that people then should come home and then rejoin the community and be very different than they were before because we expect that people will come home and not commit more crimes. And I think that it's, the whole system is based on this misconception (laughs) that responding to crime by locking people up is going to make the public safer. Like there is nothing about prisons and jails that improves public safety, not even for a minute. Because when you take a lot of people out of a community and lock them up, then crime actually goes up in that community. So it's just, I I think the fact that we take for granted that our system is doing something constructive is a big misconception. I mean, I think people think that, and also just the idea that punishment is the right response to negative behavior. I mean, None of the science shows that. Like, we're not changing anybody's behavior for the better by punishing them. I mean, think about think about my own children. Think about what, you know, people, positive reinforcement for things that we want people to do is what changes people's behavior. If you had a magic wand or you had all the resources that you could need, money, people, time, space, like, what, what, what can we do? I would say that we need to develop a victim-centered accountability system. That's what we need. You know, what's really interesting but also appalling, uh, you know, when you spend a lot of time in the criminal justice system, I spend a lot of time in state prisons and jails, is that the actual people who are harmed 
once uh, a criminal proceeding in the courts is over, you know, are almost, it's almost like they disappear. That doesn't mean that their pain or the harm that they've suffered disappears. And quite frankly, all we offer people who are harmed is a cage as a solution for whatever they've experienced. So a system that started out saying someone has been harmed here. What can we do to what can we as a community and what can the individual who has done the harm do to make this person whole or to help restore and heal that person? That should be the starting point. Um, and a cage would, should be the last resort. Right. I mean, a, a question of public safety, a question of whether someone can be in the community safely will come up with a small number of people. That, I mean, uh, you know, you see acute mental illness when you spend time in prisons and jails. And there are people who cannot necessarily live safely in the community. But whether a prisoner or jail is the the right place for the vast majority of people who are incarcerated is, you know, pretty easy to answer. But the more important question is, why do we not have a system that truly puts people who have been victimized or harmed at the heart and focuses on what we as, a, again, a community and the individual people need to do to get those folks better? Because what we see are cycles of harm and violence. You know, if you spend any time in the criminal justice system, I don't care if you're talking with front end, you know, law enforcement or in the prisons, you will very quickly hear the phrase hurt people, hurt people. Right. You'll hear it again and again and again because those cycles of trauma and violence repeat themselves again and again. And anyone who imagines that a prisoner or jail places that are inherently oppressive, violent, hierarchical places that operate based on the threat of violence. Right. That's how they work. <laughs> you know, that's that's the compliance measure that goes on in a prisoner or jail. Anyone who imagines that a prisoner or jail is a you know, intervenes in a cycle of violence has never spent any time in those places, you know? So uh, moving from a punishment par paradigm to an accountability paradigm mm -hmm. is, or would be a really seismic shift. And what can people, so there are people listening who are like, okay, I get it. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. System screwed. What can they do? I think, I mean, Georgia has alluded to some of the most important systems, which are feeders into the criminal justice system. So school systems and public health systems. And so what people can do is pay attention in their communities to the people who are experiencing distress or problems in those systems. So when we talk about school pushouts, when we talk about the school to prison pipelines, that's something everybody can get involved in in their community is making sure whether it's by direct mentorship or by their own advocacy with a school board to make sure that kids who are at risk of leaving school that we expend every effort imaginable to keep kids in school because the second a kid drops out of school, their chances of going into the public, into the criminal justice system skyrocket, right? So everybody can get involved in making sure that all the kids in their community are getting what they need, including the kids who are struggling the most in an educational system. Similarly, you know, the, the public health system, whether you're talking about substance use disorder or whether you're talking about mental health, and obviously those things obviously overlap, you know, getting involved in 
advocating for, you know, safe needle exchange and for, you know, opiate, pro, you know, opiate intervention programs that actually work as opposed to, you know, this incredible reliance on on prisons and jails to, to intervene in substance use disorder. We know that those institutions don't work. We know that they don't solve those problems. So, you know, why we have sent so many people to prison or jail, uh, you know, for crimes that are really either fundamentally like drug possession or for crimes that are driven by by substance use disorder is still, you know, a bit of a mystery, though it is grounded in punitiveness. And, you know, we've heard so much rhetoric about the op- the overdose crisis in this country about, you know, this idea that somehow we are having a really different response to that than, let's say, uh, the, you know, the, the crack quote-unquote epidemic. But I don't see that out in the world. I don't really see much. I, see, I hear a lot of rhetoric about it, but, but I think on the ground, when you're in a courtroom, you're still seeing very harsh punishment directed towards people with substance use disorder and towards people who are involved in drug retailing at the local level. Um, you know... I, uh, it, drug policy is one of the biggest areas that we have to tackle. And Georgia, how can people get involved with the WPA? Is Are there opportunities to volunteer or or would you recommend other ways for people to get involved if they want to get involved? Well, we definitely have opportunities for people to volunteer. Um, I would actually urge people to go to our website and learn more about what we do. And then what's the website? It's www.wpaonline.org. And then and you can email us directly from the website and we really love having people come in and learn more about what we're doing and figure out how people can be of help and we always can use people's support financially we can use donations of you know toiletries clothing all anything that people who are living in New York City need the women who we're helping need I got involved with the WPA. You know, I came home from prison in 2005. What's your role with the WPA? I currently sit on the board of directors. She's a vice uh, president. You know, I came home from prison <laughs> in 2005. I had a safe and stable place to live. I had family that was prepared to receive me, right? My family was in a situation where they could deal with me and my return home. I had a job that I started the week after I got out of prison. Like, I had... You know, we know exactly what makes for safe and successful return home. And I was fortunate to be able, and I can't overstate that housing piece, how important it is. And I was acutely conscious of how fortunate I was. And so, you know, my probation was over after two years and I started volunteering at the mentoring program uh, at WPA. That's how I first got involved with the organization. I knew that sometimes just having one person who is pulling for you hard and who is really actively engaged in your success and your survival can make all the difference, right? I mean, people coming out of prison and jail feel a lot of shame and a lot of they're scared and they don't want to mess up again and their self-confidence is low. And so having somebody who cheers for you and having somebody who pulls for you is really important. And it's important, you know, if we invested some of that cheerleading and, and you know, uh, love on the front end, you know, we'd, we'd definitely have fewer people in the system. And the last question is, what is a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Hmm. Um, one of the most important things that I always try to remember is that um, all of these questions of, 
wrestling with how do we get out of a punishment paradigm? How do we move from one point to another? How do we change sometimes what seems like intractable systems? You know, all these systems are operated by people. You have to meet people sort of where they are to some extent and figure out where you have overlap with them, right? So it's always about this common ground. That's the thing that I think I learned over the over time is to seek out that common ground because that has to be your starting point. It's really hard to have a starting point, even if you have, you know, seemed to be in a very oppositional position with somebody. You know, what is what is the common ground that we can find to then be able to move the needle? That I think is the thing to, that's really important to remember in these times. I think for me, the probably the most relevant piece of advice is not to run from the things that make me uncomfortable mm. and to, you know, face all the yucky stuff. And that has really been how I've learned the most. And I mean, I really encourage people to do that. I think it's it's how I've been able to have some really difficult conversations and hear things about how people experience me and to really, it's just made the world a lot bigger for me because I think it's it's made me more open to things that, you know, I'd rather not hear. But you know, forcing myself to go with the discomfort has really been a game changer. And I would recommend that everybody do it. Yeah. I think we learn a lot. Cool. Well, thank you both. Consider you both friends of the pod. Hope to have you back at some point to, to keep everybody updated. And I learned so much. Thank you for having us, Duran. Thank you. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Take the People's coming. Wherever the road may take you, Discount Tire and Continental Tire get you there safely with the perfect combination of style, comfort, and price. Get a set of Continental Tires at your local Discount Tire store or online at DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire, let's get you taken care of. People think the new fresh fragrances from Glade are fresher than fresh. Like creator Kate. This Glade Orchid Neroli candle is so fresh. It's like fresh as watching a sunrise in Santorini. Yeah. I'm going to need more of those. Explore the new Glade Fresh collection today. And this is my conversation with Tracy Field of the Casey Foundation, who's here to talk to us about foster care. Well, Tracy, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod of the People. I'm glad to be here. Now, I'm excited to talk to you because I've been fascinated by foster care and by child welfare uh, for so long. I grew up in the city of Baltimore where you are working. And uh, so much of my advocacy as a younger person was about children and families. And I often feel like there's so many things I don't know. And there's so much about this that's really important, but doesn't make the public conversation. So excited to have you here. Well, I agree with you completely. It's incredibly important. Now, can you just start and tell us how you got involved in the child welfare advocacy space and like what that actually means? Like, what is your work? So I got involved um, because I sort of have a family history of public service. My father was very involved in anti-poverty programs and civil rights. And so it was a natural that I would do something in public policy as an adult. I started out thinking I wanted to work in the area of welfare reform, but uh, got familiar with child welfare and basically never looked back. It's just an incredibly important topic when you see what has happened to some very unfortunate kids. Uh, We just can't allow that to continue. So I felt like I really needed to get into that space to try and improve things. And what is your work now? 
I work at the Annie E. Casey Foundation. I am uh, the director of the Child Welfare Strategy Group. We work with public child welfare agencies to help them improve their systems and processes and practices so that children and families who get involved uh, can achieve better outcomes. Now, is child welfare, and this is all, you know, I don't know, which is why I'm asking, is child welfare the same thing as foster care, or does child welfare mean something different? So child welfare is um, in, in the, it's basically child protection. The uh, foster care is a subset of the broader field of child welfare. Uh. What happens is uh, someone calls the child welfare hotline to say that they believe a child is being maltreated in some way. Typically, that's educators, um, medical personnel, law enforcement, it can be um, social service agencies. There are what's called mandated reporters who are by law required to call this number and report instances when they believe a child is being maltreated. At that point, the uh, hotline takes this phone call and determines based on what the caller says whether or not this sounds like it really is an instance of maltreatment and requires an investigation or whether it's some other issue like lice in the hair and just requires a public health response. But if there is determined that there should be some kind of an investigation, it's uh, basically um, there are two tracks. One is this sounds like a serious problem and an investigator will be sent out, or this sounds like maybe it's a poverty problem, there's not enough food, the child doesn't have enough warm clothes, and that's, uh, will be sent into a voluntary track and the child will, the family will receive some voluntary support or help to try and get them into a better place. But if it's a serious problem, that the family will be investigated for child abuse or neglect. And in those instances, what happens is if there is a chance that the child can be kept safely at home, if there's a finding of abuse or neglect, then there will be provided services in the home. But if there is a belief that the child cannot remain home safely, then the child goes into foster care. So what you start out with is a large number of families, but you end up with a much smaller number of kids who might ultimately end up in foster care. And what that is really helpful as context. Now, can you explain the, the foster care system or like the child welfare system as somebody who works with agencies a, across the country? Uh, you know, I, I know this is an important issue that isn't talked about, but I don't like I don't know more than that. I, I know I'm like, I care. I think it should be better. I've only heard that the system can be better. I don't actually know like how many kids are in child welfare systems across the country. Like what? I don't I don't I don't have an understanding of the landscape. Can you help paint that picture? Sure. There's um, about 7.2 million kids who are subject to an investigation or to a report of abuse and neglect. And of that, about 3.4 million children are either investigated or, or are sent to this alternative track where they are offered services within the family. And of them, about 300,000 kids end up going into foster care in a given year. So we're talking, and at any given time, because kids stay in care longer than a year in some instances, there's over 400,000 kids in foster care um, at any given time. 
And that number is, has was going down for a long time at the beginning of the century, but has now started to climb back up again. And, and what is working in foster care and what's not working? What's working is there are some federal laws that require that the first option when a child needs to be placed into foster care is that a relative be used to care for the child. And that's a law? That's in law, yeah. That's the first option. So that's the preferred option. And when relatives are used as the foster care provider, it's the best option for kids. Because they're staying with family, they know family, they provide all the cultural relevant um, expertise and uh, similarity that a child needs and wants to feel comfortable and familiar. That's the best option. Secondary, they would go into a foster family. That would be someone who has been uh, um, approved by the child welfare system. So they'd be within a foster family who would be uh, supposed to be treating them like a child, like their own child. The last option is a residential or a group program. And those programs should be used only for therapeutic purposes when the child has a real uh, mental health or behavioral problem, and then only for a very short time. What goes wrong in foster care is when we don't uh, encourage or support our relative caregivers or when we don't uh, develop enough foster families so that by default, we end up sending far too many kids to institutions or to group homes. And those are not appropriate long-term placements for children. So when you go into a city and help them with their like child welfare systems, like what, what are the type of things that you're going in and helping people think through or, or that you're helping them fix? One of the first things we do is try to fix the way they recruit, train, and support foster families and how they treat their kinship families, their relative families as well, how they find families immediately in the middle of the night if need be, and how they do some very quick uh, fingerprinting and criminal background checks so they can get kids in them immediately. We help them figure out what those processes are and what they're, what's not working about those processes and how to improve them so that they can get kids placed in families immediately rather than have them either go into a shelter for a week or sit in the office for five hours. So that's part of it. Then we help them uh, figure out, are there ways to better serve children staying within their families rather than having to be removed and put into foster care? One of the things that we're seeing now is a lot of teenagers coming into the foster care system because of behavioral issues. Their parents are having trouble managing them. They, uh, the courts don't want to send them to the juvenile justice system, and that's good. We don't want them in the juvenile justice system. But they end up going into the child welfare system, and child welfare, because of the shortage of foster families, simply places teenagers immediately into group placements. This is just a terrible practice and needs to be stopped. And that's one of the areas we're focusing on is helping keep teenagers with families. Now, what, what, are, what are the best practices and the, and the not best practices around recruiting, training, getting foster care parents? Like, what are, the, are, are there things that, like, people think work, but they're actually, like, the bad ways of doing it? And what are the, the right ways of doing it or the best practices? Well, when it comes to foster families, uh, a lot of agencies uh, 
take sort of the easy way out, which is you do some public um, information ads on the radio or you put up a table at a mall or a church. And it's a very sort of passive way to recruit foster families. Especially for teenagers, you want to search out people who like teens. So you want to search out uh, schools, uh, people who work with teens, community centers, uh, athletic team managers, folks like that, coaches. Those are the people who you want to work with because you know already that they, you know, they find teens, they're comfortable with teens. You know, a lot of people don't like their own teenage kids, let alone somebody else's. <laughs> so you right. got to look for people who really like teenagers, and that's sometimes not easy. But it's the passive practices that I think are the worst. But I think more importantly than recruiting is what you do when you get them recruited. If you have a phone call of someone who says, I want to be a foster parent, and the agency says it has a recording and calls them back in three weeks, and tells them to come to training in three months. Well, guess what? They've lost interest by the time you've actually gotten them in the door. So you got to develop a system that shows how much they're needed and treats them with respect and treats them like they are the most important intervention in the child welfare system, which they are. I've heard I've heard so many horror stories about group homes from people, and, and it could just be that I'm hearing, you know, only the bad stories and not the good stories. But you and you talked about group homes just a little bit. But what is the like? How do kids in foster care end up in a group home and not with a foster family? Are there just literally not enough foster families? So if there's not a foster family, do you and and you can't be reunited with relatives? Is a group home like what the natural next step or or how does that work? It's often the default. If they don't have enough foster families, they will reserve their foster families for young kids and teenagers will be put automatically as a first placement into a group home. Now, let me explain why group homes are not the best for teenagers. All teenagers develop at slightly different uh, time periods. If you grew up with a group of siblings, you know that because you got to go out on your own at age 15 doesn't mean that your brother or your sister, when they were 15, got to go out on their own. You develop at different paces, different rates. And it's a a process of developing uh, some independence, using it well, being responsible, or not doing it well, and then you're sort of restricted for a while until you can try it again. So it's a sort of a, uh, a experimental time in your life where you're trying to achieve independence, but you still have the safety of family and the oversight of family. But in a group home, everybody is treated exactly the same way with exactly the same restrictions, and there's no opportunity to develop that independence that you need as you grow up. And so it, what it does is it really stifles the ability of teenagers to develop that in, those independent skills that they're going to need as adults. And what do we, what's the alternative? What happens if there're just not enough foster care families and there aren't relatives and group homes aren't the option? Like what do we what can we do like what's the systemic fix? Well, there's a couple of things. I think first of all, we're not spending enough attention to try and keep families together. In other words, 
There's a lot of kids who come into foster care, especially teenagers, because of behavioral issues. We could work with those families to address some of those issues. There are programs that help deal with sort of the conflict that comes when teenagers are pushing against their parents and parents are bent out of shape because their teens aren't be they think they're being disrespectful and defiant. There are ways to deal with that so we can stop this influx of teenagers coming into care for behavioral problems. For younger kids, it's not quite the same, but we could develop oversight programs. For for kids, what we want for younger kids is we want to have um, oversight. We want to have people seeing the kids every day. So school, if they're going to school every day, school is a protection for kids. If they are, in fact, if their mother has some substance abuse issues, and we know these kids may be unsafe because of her erratic or um, infrequent use of substances, then we have to have some way to protect that child. First, we look to relatives. Are there relatives who can look in on the kids? Are there neighbors who are willing to look in on the kids? Just to keep them safe at home and offer services to the mother. Are there some after-school programs we can put the kids in? Sometimes for moms of very young children, they really need a break. You know, there may be single moms. They may be very underemployed. They may be overstressed because of the number of kids they have. Can we get them some daycare so that they have a break? And this can sort of assuage some of the problems that we see with moms who get overstressed or um, really angry or upset because they are just so overwhelmed by their lives. So are there more things that we can do to keep families together and help them stay together rather than just pull the kids and put them into foster care? Are there states or cities that are doing this really well? Well, that's a hard question. There are a lot of jurisdictions that have a number of very good programs, uh, but are they commonly available? Not as much as you would like. What we have seen is that, unfortunately, what leads to the development of a good array of services is a class action lawsuit. Really? And why is that? Because the class action lawsuit settlement agreement usually requires more resources be put into the system. And so a lot of those settlement agreements say you've got to have behavioral health services available. You've got to have substance abuse services available for parents. So when they're written into a court settlement agreement, the agencies very often then have to develop those services. So some of the agencies that I think may be doing the best, like um, New Jersey, Connecticut, Tennessee, Oklahoma, have had some fairly significant class action lawsuits, and and they've gotten the resources they need to do a better job. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop.
All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. One of the things that I don't understand is that it is well into the 2000s and in, in an age where there's so much information, it feels like if you all have an understanding of what the best practices are, that like we should be able to put these into practice because we know that doing this the right way will have such an impact on kids. Like, What is holding us back from being able to like recruit families at scale or like to in-group homes for the majority? Like what's the what are the structural barriers? Is it that we don't have the right leadership or, like, people don't care? Like, what is it? I think it is primarily a question of um, a lack of continuing commitment on the part of uh, decision makers who make decisions about budgets. That what we see is that when there's a problem in child welfare, a horrible incident occurs, everyone wants to make sure there's enough uh, caseworkers and make sure there's enough placements and make sure there's enough foster families. But then what happens is over time, legislators, commissioners, whatever, lose interest and they start nickel and diming the agency so that you get fewer caseworkers, worse supervision, lots of turnover, and the expertise that was once there just sort of fades away and the services fade and everybody forgets what... Good practice is because they're so overstressed with limited resources. And then we got to start all over again. And and are there ways for um like if you can't if I can't be a foster parent, but I but I want to help. What are there other opportunities for people to help around child welfare wherever they are? A lot of child welfare agencies, public child welfare agencies, and private child welfare agencies. What's a have, private child welfare agency? I don't uh, understand what a private, like how okay. does it exist? Uh, they are licensed facilities. They're called child placement agencies, and some of them are, in fact, residential treatment programs that um, operate programs under contract to the public system. So they would be the people who would, in fact, find uh, foster families and license them and oversee those foster families, or they could have a group home or residential treatment program. Anyway, a lot of those programs, both public and private, have volunteer opportunities where you could come in and you could serve meals, you could mentor a child, you could tutor a child after school. Uh, even you could probably even uh, find programs that would allow you to hire a foster youth and give them a job experience. Mm which would be a tremendous opportunity. You don't know the number of foster kids who age out of the system and have never had a job. It's just, it's a shame. 
And, and how does the age out process work? So once you, and, and what age is aging out? Uh, are there supports that the system provides given that you have been in, in, in the child welfare system? Or like, how does it, do you, do you literally just get like, a, I don't know, a, a goodbye note and then all of a sudden you're like on your own? Like, how does that work? Yeah, it it used to be where you were on your 18th birthday, you were given a plastic bag with your belongings and put out on the street. That's changed, luckily, uh, because of federal legislation. There are now programs that allow states to have an option to increase the age of foster care to 21 so that a child can, in fact, choose to stay in care and foster care longer and can also get benefits for uh, post-secondary education to have their tuition paid. So uh, that's hugely beneficial for them, but not all states have selected that option. Now, kids still have the option to go to college in uh, states that haven't gone to uh, foster care to 21, but you have to, of course, have the um, appropriate um, educational requirements to, to get into college. So if you weren't a very good student or in the case of teenagers, they bounce around from one foster family to another is they are very uh, much uh, behind in their educational achievement. So they may, in fact, not have the high school degree that they would need to get into college and may not have a GED. Now, the goal is to try and help those kids get GEDs, but by the time they're 18, many of them may be so uh, frustrated with the way they've been treated that they just basically um, say goodbye and, unfortunately, Many of them end up with very poor educations. Uh, many end up homeless. Uh, many end up in the criminal justice system. Now, there's a lot of kids who've done very well, who've aged out, have gone to college, and are a huge success right now. But more often and more likely is the kids who age out, are um, their prospects are really poor. Now, are there any policy solutions that we should be looking at in cities across the country? Like if we, you know, on this podcast, there are so many activists and organizers who I know care about this issue, but have no sense of like where they should be pressing or what questions they should be asking or who they should be going to. Can you help us think through that a little bit better? Like what the policy solutions look like? I've heard you talk about. Uh, recruiting foster families. So I'm going to go back and do some homework about what that looks like in Baltimore. I hadn't thought about that. Is there a profile of a foster family? Like are, are foster parents normally like over 50? And is there like an ideal age for foster families? Is it normally a man and a woman? Is it like, how does that, I don't know. Yeah, any, I, anybody can become a foster parent. Uh, what we find is typically foster parents are working class people who are uh, very involved in their churches, and they become foster parents because uh, they want to do good for kids. And so it's a real altruistic calling for most people. And so those are the people we try to reach out to. But the fact of the matter is we don't support foster parents very well. Hmm. What happens is we, we give them a foster child we pay them a stipend, which basically covers the cost of the child's needs, but is often very much below what they spend on the child. And then we leave them hanging out to dry. We don't support them. We don't help them. We don't give them a number to call if there's an emergency at two in the morning, if a child is acting out or if a child hasn't come home that night. 
And that's what happens is we can recruit enough foster families, but what we don't do is support the foster families. And that's what we really need to emphasize. We have a campaign going on with a number of foundations and public agencies and advocacy organizations right now called CHAMPS, Children Need Amazing Parents. And the idea is to find parents and better support them. If if advocates want to get involved in helping kids who are maltreated and in need, they should be advocating for better supports for foster and kin parents willing to take kids who really need the help. What happens is a lot of foster parents, in fact, there's been a study that said 50% of foster parents leave foster parenting after the first foster child leaves their home because they didn't feel like anyone was there to help them and support them. If we can change that narrative, if we can change the way public systems are able to help and support foster parents, we can keep foster parents and keep kids in those foster homes. When kids disrupt foster families, in other words, a foster parent calls and says, you've got to get this kid out of my house. I can't, I can't manage him anymore. Kids start bouncing around, and there's been research that shows that every time they go to a different foster family, they develop negative behaviors, more and more negative behaviors, till they ultimately end up in a group home or residential treatment. If we can support them and keep them in that first foster family, we have done so much to help that child's future. And that's where we need to focus our energy, is let's find foster families and support them and treat them like kings of the world because they are doing such a great service now how long do um do kids normally stay in foster care like is do we know the average length of stay yeah the average length of stay is about a year but uh, Mm. uh, most kids can go home much more quickly than that now there's some kids who stay in care for four and five years and they are the exception what we try to do is get them out and get them about half of the kids go home ultimately they go back to their families Another 25% or so get adopted. And then there's a group who go to um, guardianship, who go to live with other relatives. It's about uh, 15 to 20%, and then about 8% age out. So, and do, we, do we know the demographics of uh, foster kids? Like, is it mostly boys? Is it split it's about boys half and, and girls? Half. It's about half and half. And, and it, of the kids coming into care, about half of the kids are are five or under, and about 25% are, are um, teenagers, 13 and older. Five and under, really? Yeah. Well, those are the kids who are most at risk and most vulnerable because they don't have a lot of eyes on oh, them. I guess school, that makes sense. Et cetera. And, they're the, and the, they're the most vulnerable in terms of feeding and taking care of. That is, I didn't, I hadn't thought about like that half the kids who enter foster care are under five. That's, that is sort of interesting. Is there is there a part of the country or states or cities where there's like a disproportionate number of kids in foster care or is it sort of evenly distributed across the country? Well, it varies um, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Very often we find uh, that cities ha- will take more kids into care than rural areas. And we don't know why that is. It could just be that there's more eyes on kids in cities than there are in rural areas. We also know that there's a fair amount of disproportionality, racial disparities in uh, foster care, that typically we find uh, more 
African-American children in foster care than they uh, um, are represented in the general population. Um, We know that uh, abuse and neglect is very highly correlated with poverty. So there's some who would say that that's the reason why we have more um, African-American children in foster care. However, we have fewer Latino or Hispanic children in foster care than their numbers in the population. So there's a lot of theories about why all this exists, but no one knows for sure. And I have to say it varies tremendously from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Now, can you recommend any um, reading or a place where people can go to learn more information about foster care? Well, um, they could certainly go to our website, uh, aecf.org. We have a lot of materials about foster care, about kinship care, about child welfare in general. And there's a lot of links to other um, organizations and other websites that have a lot of information as well. If you want some general statistics, you could go to the Children's Bureau website of the federal government. And you can just Google Children's Bureau and it'll take you right there. And it'll give you statistics about the numbers um, by age, length of stay, all kinds of information. Got it. And a question that I ask everybody is, you know, in this moment, people feel like hope is waning, that they've tried, they've protested, they've called, they've done all these things, and it's not getting better is how they feel. What do you say to those people? Well, I've been in this field for 30 years, and I have personally been through so many times when I thought everything was getting better, and then it gets worse. Like I said, agencies excel, and then they fall back. But I do think it's a three steps forward and two steps back. We are getting better. The progress isn't as fast as I would like to see it, but it is getting better. If you look at where the field was 10 years ago or 20 years ago, it's so much better now. We just got to keep up the good fight. And, and I think that I think workers get very discouraged because they don't see the change uh, as quickly as they want. And I think that's another area that needs some improvement is the turnover in the child welfare workforce is horrible. We sometimes find uh, 30, 40 percent of the workers leaving the field within two years of taking the job. And you can't do a good job if you haven't been there long enough to develop the experience that you need to, to do the kind of work that child welfare is all about. And are most child care workers like social workers or, or do they come from like a, a range of backgrounds? Range of backgrounds. Uh, it's preferred to have social workers, but there aren't enough social workers in this country to, to fill all the child welfare jobs. So, you know, you end up with people with degrees in sociology or psychology or what have you. Got it. Well, I appreciate you so much. Can people find you on um, Can people find you on Twitter or, or Facebook or somewhere? Uh, not on Facebook, but we, I do have a blog. Uh, we have a child welfare blog and uh, newsletter that comes out that you can sign up for uh, on our website, aecf.org. Well, I learned so much today. I appreciate you joining us on Pod Save the People, and I consider you a friend of the pod, so we hope to have you back for some more updates. Oh, thank you so much. And honestly, uh, I'm so excited that you were interested in this topic. It's just um, a passion with me and with all the people I work with. So we're glad to talk about it. Cool. Thanks so much. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for joining Pod Save the People. Make sure that you share with a friend. Make sure you rate it on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And I will see you back here next week. Yeah.